Hello. I think Joe's coming in good now. <clears throat> Testing. Joe, yep. can you talk? Hello. I can hear all of you. Oh, Great. yeah. All right. We are, wait, I don't think you're in, Mike. Talk. I'm here. I can hear you. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, wait, wait. Let's just take this in for a minute. The music. Let's take it in. Thirty-five minutes of technological problems. I think we're on the air. We made it. We're on. We have a guest in the room, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to ask uh, our guest before I introduce him. Because we want the suspense. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. We want the suspense. Did you have a good weekend, Mike Moore? Had a crazy weekend. Had a wedding shower this weekend. I, I heard we had an event. I'm not making fun of this. Chuck, if you're listening, I am not making fun of this, but I heard you had an event. Yeah. And a little, little family scare. Well, this was the rehearsal dinner or the... Uh, uh, this is the wedding shower. The wedding shower. I've, I've lost touch with what comes first, oh, but you this is both. And your dad had a heart attack. Well, he had, he had a heart attack in the morning, well before the wedding Did shower. he make the shower? He did not make the shower. Chuck... If you were a hockey player, Chuck, you would have been there. <laughs> uh, the great thing with my dad is he has a great sense of humor about it. So he was cracking jokes hours after the heart attack. Did you zoom him in from the hospital in the <laughs> no, middle of the uh, no. surgery? We, we took a lot of photos. We just uh, we went there immediately after. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, folks, uh, we wish Chuck well. Chuck, I was praying for you, dude, if you're listening. And uh, we know he's on to a full recovery. That's why we can kind of smile. Yes. Yes. At it. Yeah. Thank right you, the Lord, for that. Ladies and gentlemen, we have with us today uh, an esteemed guest, Reverend Joe Mitchell, or otherwise known as George Joseph Mitchell, esteemed reverend of, pastor of uh, Missionary Baptist Church. New Hope Missionary Baptist New Hope Missionary Baptist Church in DeKalb, Illinois. And Joe, it's great to have you on here. I, I will explain how this happened, but tell us a little bit about your name. How did this name evolve over time from George <laughs> to Joe? Uh, I was uh, named um, after my two, I was named after my two uh, grandfathers. Uh, so I was named after my uh, father's father first and my mother's father second, thus George Joseph. Most people don't even know my legal first name is George. I have grown up as Joey, that transitioned to Joe. Um, and then as I got a little bit older, that transitioned to Joseph. So I answer to all three, Joe, Joey, and Joseph. And, and so uh, <clears throat> I prefer Joe. What do you prefer, Mike? Yeah, I'll go with Joe. Okay. Because that's what Joe people works. call him now, right? That's what they call me now, Joe <clears throat> Works. And tell us a little bit about uh, New Hope. Uh, New Hope, God willing, will celebrate its 32nd church anniversary in July. And it was established as the first African-American church in DeKalb um, when we were founded 32 years ago. Uh, we have a blended worship style on Sundays. Um, we have um, um, a lot of ministries that are involved in the community and really uh, see ourselves as a community church um, that uh, worships in an African-American context and culture. All right. Well, we're, we're grateful you could step in with us here this morning. And uh, the subjects all of this podcast all started uh, in a Facebook post where I posted an article <clears throat> by Leonardo Blair, 
of the Christian Post. This is way back in February now. Wow. The title of the article was Challenged by Racism in White Churches. Black churches endure, but with competition. And one of the things, uh, one of the reported interesting aspects of this article is Reverend Cheryl J. Sanders, professor of Christian ethics at Howard University School of Divinity, said this, the black church will no longer be needed when the white church puts away its racism, but I haven't seen it yet. And I remember posting that yep. the black church will no longer be needed once the white church gets rid of its racism. And you had some things to say, which I thought were not only interesting, but I thought important and compelling and that we need to talk about. So I don't know if you remember that, but could you like give us a response to uh, the Reverend Dr. Cheryl Sanders from Howard? Sure. Um, I, I, think, um, I think history and context are always important when you have conversations around church. And I think when you look at it historically and understand uh, the black church in America historically, uh, you understand that it was birthed out of racism. Um, when you mm-hmm. look at uh, church history, you understand that uh, during slavery, um, um, slaves would gather what they would call and call at brush armors uh, mm-hmm. down by the riverside uh, and have worship service quietly um, in the midnight hour uh, because they were not allowed to do it publicly. And the uh, theology and the preaching and the teaching that was being done from a supposed Christian perspective by their slave masters was mm-hmm. one of obedience and oppression and not one of liberation and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, the black church had to be birthed, and it was birthed out of the racism um, that was happening in this country at the time. I think when you also understand, even after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, racism was still very prevalent even in churches. Um, you know, At some point, we were allowed uh, to come and worship in white spaces, but even in that, that came with restrictions. We had to sit, our ancestors had to sit in the balcony, mm-hmm. or they had to sit in the back, and they weren't served communion, or people had to put on gloves to serve them communion. Um, so when you even look at the the birth of the AME Church uh, and Richard Allen, you know they they loved the theology and the doctrine of the Methodist Church, but they did not how like how it was applied to African Americans in this country. So they went out and started the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, and by the way, a lot of that history is in this article, if you want to go look it up in, on Christian Post, ladies and gentlemen, by Leonardo Blair, challenged by racism in white churches. But, um, Joe, you had uh, something to say about the fact that even if racism was completely eliminated from our social cultural realities, we'd still need a black church. Absolutely. Yeah. And so this this fascinated me, and and to some extent, uh, I wanted to explore it more. I actually think I agree with you. <laughs> um, Just think that. But I'm not— You're going to flesh it out. I need to flesh it out. So tell us what you were trying to say there on the post. Yeah, well, one of the importance of the African-American church is um, in the society that we live in today, people of color need a place that is um, contextual and— um, um, contextual and it's also um, relevant to what it means to be an African-American in America. And so for that reason, uh, the African-American church will always have an importance in our community. Um, it's a place where we can be affirmed in who we are um, and, and what we believe in. 
Uh, it's a place where our children can be affirmed um, that the color of their skin is not a deficit, but it's a blessing. And in the culture that we're living in today, oftentimes in those spaces where our children and we operate every day, that's not going to happen. And so oftentimes on Sunday or those activities during the week that happen at an African-American church, that affirmation takes place in our young people, in our adults, uh, that they are valued outside of you know, their work ethic or outside of what they may bring to an organization. They're simply valued because they were made in the image of God and who they are. Um, and their color of their skin is not a deficit, but it's yes. a blessing. Yes. And so, uh, and Mike, don't let me hog the mic yeah, here, but I'm, I'm very interested in this whole thing. So I'm yeah. just going to keep going until... Uh, until I jump in. I jump. <laughs> I'm interested in it too. Okay. Uh, so I, I just, uh, uh, so, so what I'm hearing mm -hmm. is that the black church has a role to play in terms of, of uh, <clears throat> carrying on, cultivating the black culture. Yes. Um, that we shouldn't lose the history, even the history of the oppression and slavery that went on. Absolutely. To truly understand who we are, where we came from. So we will always need a black church to, to maintain and actually refine and continue on the black culture itself. Yes. So you, so you want to make some comments on that? I, I don't want, uh, you know, I, th that's what I think I heard from you. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. Uh, tell me more. Uh, give, me, give me some examples. Of sure. No, what you said is spot on. I think even, even when you look at it from a, um, a worship experience on Sunday morning, um, you know, in the African-American church, you have a very Afrocentric worship style that we brought with us from Africa, mm -hmm. uh, where we believed in worship with our entire body. And so um, it's not uncommon for African-American churches to be loud. It's not uncommon for African-American churches to have um, many instruments. It's not uncom uncommon for African-American worship uh, to include worship with the body, if that's raising the hands, if that's clapping the hands, if that's stomping the feet, uh, because that's very Afrocentric. That's in, in our DNA of who we are. And so even in that experience, that reminds us of where we came from. And so even on Sunday morning, we have to have that engagement so we don't forget um, and we continue to remember um, from whence we came and that our Afrocentric roots are beautiful and important and they can't be forgotten. Yeah. And so now we get to the question that that's on probably a lot of the minds of the people who are listening to this yeah. program right now. Uh, because multi-ethnic or multicultural mm -hmm. church has almost become the new rage. Yes. Yes. New rage, meaning the not not rage, anger rage. It's become the new uh, <laughs> thing. thing. Yes. Mike, have you experienced? Uh, oh yes. Uh, the popularity. Absolutely. Can you give us some examples? Can yeah. you tell well, us what's going on out there about the? You actually, we have at our seminary a masters in multi-ethnic. Yeah. Um, and so, leadership. and so why, why do we have this? What's going on? Yeah. I, I think a lot of the, the basis or the basis of the argument is if you look at the early church, the early church was multicultural Jew, Gentile in the book of Acts, the default for the church was multicultural. And I think the argument's being made that the church was always multicultural from the beginning. <coughs> it just has become segregated, um, especially in America, um, over generations of time. So we should, push back to the first century when the church was multicultural. Um, so that's kind of the theological argument. By the way, another theological yeah. argument that, well, not uh, a scriptural argument, has been the uh, Rev Revelation chapter 7, yep. uh, the vision of a great multitude yep. 
from every nation, from tribes, all tribes and peoples and languages. And by the way, it appears from that text that there still are tribes, peoples, languages. <laughs> There's not one right, uni right. culture, tribe, people, or language. Right. What so, do you do with that? Yeah. Okay, before we go back to Joe, <laughs> Mike Moore, you're on the spot. What do you, what do we do with that? Well, I, I I hear the same argument being made in in Acts, right? Uh, yep. th- this idea that. Everybody just made into this one monolith. But um, I think John Howard Yoder actually has a great reading. You know what I'm talking about? I'm looking at Dave. Um, of Acts no. chapter 2. Well, he goes back and he interprets the Tower of uh, Babel. Oh, that's what you're talking about. I actually assigned that text to a class that you were in. Wow, you were that's where I read student. it. Did you read it? Oh, okay, at least you read it. <laughs> at least you read it. But, uh, this is a good sign. But, but, but Yoder's idea is that the, the diversity that you see in Babel is actually a, a gifting to the world to send the world out um, into a diversity of gifts and languages. But, but also the diversity means we become mutually dependent upon one right. another. The Tower of Babel was we're just going to all ascend to God individually in autonomy uh, uh, we don't need anybody. Actually, mm-hmm. the, the diversity that came forth from that was said, no, you need to depend on each other right. mutually to learn about who I am. Right. There is no direct yeah. link to God. And that happens in Acts, too, because it's different languages. I mean, <coughs> yes. They hear them speaking in their own tongues. They don't go. hear them speaking in a tongue. Correct. Let me ask this question before we continue. Someone define multi-ethnic cultural, however we're going to put it, define that term for me, please. Oof. Oof. I always need, I, you know me from my post. I always like definitions so that I make sure yeah. that I'm conversating in the right. Let's get our terms straight. Absolutely. But, well, Dave and I are both looking at each you other. Were both lo- <laughs> we're <laughs> both <laughs> looking at each other going, uh, so I, I have a problem understanding. What, what's your, um, what's the, the issue that you see with how we define multicultural churches? Yeah, multicultural, multi-ethnic. The mm-hmm. problem, well, it assumes that there can be more than one culture at work in a body, a socio-political body of the church, right. at one time. The argument there is, I've often heard, always now there. So, so the, excuse me for mumbling and trying to get my thoughts together. <laughs> uh, but it seems that it always turns out to be the dominant culture is the one that's actually hegemonous and at work, and people of different colors are kind of being, uh, what do you call it, grafted into okay. the dominant culture. Right. Colonized, maybe. <coughs> and so this is a problem. Now, I'm going to argue that maybe something else can happen in, in a minute, but um from what it sounds like, Joe, you're arguing similar to several friends. And by the way, I'm not. I'm talking people of color, white people. May have I've heard them all make this this uh, argument that as hard as you try, it's still going to be the dominant culture that actually started the church. That's going to be the one that's organizing and the language that's driving everything. And people of color can come in, or people white people can come into a black church. Fine, but it's going to be a black church. Mm-hmm. Yes. My question to you is, uh, should we even be pursuing this multi-ethnic, multicultural thing? For me, I think it's um, a lot of it is contextual. Um, you know, where where is this taking place at? Yes. Is there a need based on context for this type of church? 
Uh, when I talk about New Hope and, and us being birthed t 32 years ago, there was a need in DeKalb as African-Americans were making DeKalb home. They had mm -hmm. no place to worship. They had to go back to Chicago every weekend or they had to go to the suburbs every weekend. So there was a need in the community for an African-American place for people to worship in the context that they knew and understood that related to their everyday lives. And so when we talk about multicultural or multi-ethnic churches, I always ask the question, is that the need of the context that it's being placed yes. or planted? Or is it just this new fad that we say, oh yeah, we're a multicultural church and so everyone's welcome here. Mm. Everyone's welcome at New Hope, even though we're a predominantly African-American church, everyone's yeah. welcome at New Hope. We have non-African-Americans who are not uh, who are part of the who are part of the church and in leadership at New Hope, but we are an African American church. Mm -hmm. So I guess de depending on how you define multi ethnic and multicultural, we could be a multi ethnic and multicultural church, but who we are and how we interpret, how we preach, how we teach our theology is always going to be from an African American perspective because that's who we are. Yeah, and we're not yeah. going to lose that. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, uh, just talking, um, so there's this guy on the web who I know a little bit, Rahadi. Rahadi, if you're listening, love your work. But he said this, attractional multi-ethnic church produces homogeneity in different genes. <laughs> Jeans being Jeans. pants. Yep. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my friend Matt Connor said, he asked this sincere question. How important is it to form groups of people of mixed races who all face forward, consume a program, and go home after an hour? <laughs> I certainly understand the drive for diversity, but generally speaking, these books, multi-ethnic church books, or endeavors towards some multi-ethnic church boils down to a Sunday morning gathering as some thermometer. It feels like a noble longing with flawed execution. Ooh. Wow! Way to go, Matt Connor. Well, this is the issue. Uh, Multi-ethnic is really more uh, about conversations, absolutely, and the things that are going on between people groups than what's going on on the front stage or what language we're using. Part of the biggest problem with white church is the patriarchal, hegemonic ways yes. of ensconcing people into power structures. And if we don't have conversations like this, white people like myself will never be able to see what we're doing and how we're doing it and get out of it. Mm -hmm. Yes. You Did you have, at Loyola, did you have a multi-ethnic church there? Was that multi-ethnic? Um, I mean, it was probably 70% white, you know, European. Um, and... There, we had lots of conversations about it, and what it typically looked like was, we're going to sing a song in Spanish this week, um, which I, I think points to the critiques that, that we're hearing here. Is you know we're gonna we're gonna put something up uh, on face, on stage, so people feel like this is multicultural. It, it feels a lot like the college I went to, um, like a lot of small private Christian schools. We'd have a photo shoot, and I was always asked to be like the white guy in the photo shoot <laughs> and then it was uh, my african-american friend yeah. uh tony uh and then uh, there's a guy from china and you know we're sitting around talking to each other in the library and we're like this is not this is not this school but that's very different than if you went to a, a historically black college and you Correct. saw their pamphlet it's like 
what do you expect to see there? Well, you'd expect to see all African-Americans. But at my school, and there's a lot of schools, it's like, hey, look how diverse we are. But nobody's questioning who chose the people to be on that pamphlet. Um, how do they even get enrolled? What are the power structures that are educating you know, these men and women? I saw I read an interesting article, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, um, somebody wrote about the, detar- the departure of African-Americans from um, white and multi, I think they used multicultural churches. And they looked at two events. Um, they looked at um, Colin Kaepernick, and they looked at um, the Black Lives Matter movement and talked about how many African-Americans are leaving those spaces because those places where they come to worship, those places where they come uh, to hear a relevant sermon for the life that they're living in today, those contexts weren't speaking to their life and what was going on in their life. Mm-hmm. And so that was causing a mass exodus of, of people of color to leave those contexts because this is where I worship, this is where I put my money, but yet you're not speaking into the relevancy of what's happening in my life what I need to hear from God in situations like this, you're not even dealing with. Mm. Uh, When when Michael Brown is laying in the street dead for several hours and I go to church and my pastor has absolutely nothing to say about it, how does that speak to my context? Mm -hmm. And so for me, it just just points back to the importance of the African-American church that has to speak to the relevancy and contents of what we are dealing with every day Mm -hmm. as as African-Americans in this country. And to me, the church has to do that. The church has to be relevant. Yeah. Has to be the relevant. gospel must be proclaimed absolutely over every issue and situation of our lives. And if you're all, if if a white church can't speak into that, there's probably, even if there's not another person of color in the in the room, if they can't speak into that, well, then we're going to get nowhere. And so there's probably needs to be people of color in the room to tell said leadership, hey, there are issues going on here, and we need you. To participate. Um, you know, uh, I think it was seven, eight years ago I read uh, James Cone's uh, uh, Martin and Malcolm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, the subtitle was A Dream or Nightmare. Mm-hmm. And uh, he painted two pictures of African-American presence in, in America. <clears throat> Martin Luther King, and, uh, a presence of integration in what he said was the white Mm -hmm. America, that the white America could welcome the African-American into a system of justice. And Martin Luther King had kind of like the Protestant mainline liberal vision going on there. Malcolm, on the other hand, (laughs) at this point, he had become uh, a uh, Muslim. And he said, no, the African-American, we need to become, we need to know who we are Mm -hmm. first. Yes so that we don't blend in and become ensconced, one of my favorite ideological words, into the white (laughs) supremacy ideological edifice that oppresses us. I I hear some of this uh, kind of debate going on with you and the way you're talking about the need for the black church. Absolutely. I mean, even think about it for, even from a, um, an educational or historical standpoint. Um, so many, so many African Americans are not getting a true education of who they are in our school systems, mm-hmm. simply because our school systems oftentimes are not dedicated to teaching the truth. They're, they're dedicated to teaching a historical 
record that benefits America, but sure. doesn't necessarily tell the truth about America. You can say it benefits white America. Okay, benefits yeah. white America. Um, and also, when we look at it from um, a black perspective, our children are not getting um, a history that teaches um, more than just slavery. So when we talk about African-American, when you talk about um, U.S. history, nine out of ten times, we're interjected into that history just at slavery and nothing else. Yeah. But when we really look at it from, from its totality, African-Americans have had a major, major contribution to the history of this country, yes. but our children are not being taught that. Mm. So for me, that's another um, reason why the black church is needed so that we can educate our children as well to the rich history that they have in this country that's more than just slavery. You're, you're teaching them an oppressed history. And then we wonder why many of our children act the way that they do. They're not getting anything but an oppressed history. Give them the rich, enlightened, uplifting history that's inclusive of what they did, and maybe we'll see something different out of our children. Yeah. For me, that's the role. That's an important role the Black Church has to play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is just uh, a great uh, insight uh, to all of us as to how we cannot preempt what needs to happen before we can go multicultural or multi-ethnic and I think there's a jump or a leap now Derwin if you're listening we're 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 open to hear more uh, or um, uh, Greg Armstrong uh, head of admissions at Northern Seminary <laughs> we are here for you okay but so the question comes for everybody who's listening well what do we do if we're yeah. if we're a majority Great white question. church right or if we're a majority black church, what do we do? Uh, do we just ignore the racial issues? Should we not have multi-ethnic, multicultural conversations? Um, the way I have thought about it is, can a new culture emerge? <coughs> uh, cough button, sorry. <laughs> Folks, I'm still getting over this cough. Can we get beyond the divide? Is this desirable? If we are in a culture, like where I live in Westmont, many African Americans are moving there to flee some of the violence on the south and yep. west side. Yep. And yet we have some, some racial issues going on in our village hall. Yep. And we have other issues going on, like uh, blue ribbons on Main Street. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we need to have conversations and, and so what is a church to do? You got any suggestions for us, Joe, on that? Uh, I can share what, we, what we've, we've been striving to do um, by way of New Hope. So after um, the death of um, Michael Brown um, in um, Missouri, why well, can't I think of this? In, um, Ferguson. Ferguson, Ferguson. In Ferguson, Missouri, um, sat down um, with the um, local um law enforcement sat down with some local pastors and said, hey, when you look at that whole situation, one of the most peaceful nights they had is when law enforcement, clergy, and people of the community marched together, protested together, mm -hmm. and, and got rid of the divide between community versus police and said, you know what, we're going to do this together. One, that one night, there was no arrest. There was no violence. Uh, so we had a conversation with some local clergy, with the local law enforcement, and said, hey, let's do a unity march in our community where we bring law enforcement together, we bring the community together, and we bring those churches who are willing to participate together and say, hey, 
let's start to be the beloved community we believe God has called us to be. Out of that March, we launched something called the Beloved Community Dinners. So once a month at different churches, we gather around a potluck dinner, and then we engage in conversations strictly related to race. We don't talk about anything but race. Mm. And that's been going on now for, I believe, about, was about three and a half, four years. Mm. And so to your point, we have to be willing to sit down and have a conversation, some, a real conversation, a tough conversation. Um, and I think the church can be the leading driving force in bringing people together to have those conversations. And, and I believe Jesus works in these conversations. I believe Jesus Absolutely. becomes present in these conversations. Absolutely. I believe we bring something so unique in terms of the reconciliation the forgiveness the healing by the holy spirit through jesus that um we should we are the ones who should be taking the lead in these Absolutely. conversations yeah. can, can i give you another suggestion of, yes. of my experience so church out here in the suburbs <coughs> called a suburban life community church sub urban hmm. it's predominantly white church that has like submitted that's why they call themselves suburban hmm to a historically black church in Austin. Uh, and every three weeks, this predominantly white church does not worship, and they go to Austin um, and, uh, in a posture of like submission that we are going to learn from from this church. They've been doing this for about 25 yeah. years now. Wow. Um, Reverend Tim Hookstra uh, and Phil Hilliard, the pastor in Austin. His dad is Clarence Hilliard, who wrote The Funky Gospel, which was a kind of a controversial article back in Christianity Today about 30 years ago. Nice. Um, but I think, and this could be provocative, so I'm just going to throw out there, but I, I think you can make the argument that we need black churches, but maybe we don't need white churches um, <laughs> in the sense of like we need like a prophetic voice. Um, but if there are um, predominantly white churches that have been um, places where there has been a lot of power misused and abused mm -hmm. that those congregations, it is incumbent upon them to um, submit to surrender and to go to places where they can learn um, as opposed to um, expecting African-American churches to come to into a, um, a, a white church and have right. a conversation. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? You, you looked a little uncomfortable. When no, said no. That. I, uh, it's my cough. Yeah, it's not your cough. <laughs> uh, okay, so what I heard you say, though, which you you may have interpreted as uncomfortable, I was going, wow, that's a neat, interesting phrase. <laughs> we may need black churches, but we may not need white churches, yeah. is what you said. Mm -hmm. um, which, uh, to me, is a dismantling of white church as we know it. Yeah. Um, and so the question is, um, okay, uh, I'm having a hard time getting my thoughts together this quickly. It's such a brilliant, insightful comment, but uh, <laughs> something in me wants to say, don't we need each other to somehow recognize and even get to the place where we see we got power problems? Yeah, probably. And so uh, it's not like, you're so brilliant you can go into said right. mega church with all the money in Barrington and say, you guys need to shut down, damn it. Yeah, no, yeah. You can't do that. That's Good not going to get that one. Good luck. Yeah. So in other words, it's not until we enter, <coughs> sorry, enter into conversation mm -hmm. that, 
that the truth can be revealed, that the glasses we're seeing through can be taken off and we can see the ideologies at work, the white supremacy at work. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I don't know if we're out of time, but I got one more thing I'd like to ask Joe. Yeah, Uh, please. uh, All right. So growing up, white guy uh, in Canada, Motown. Now, Motown was black music, but it was commercialized Mm -hmm. for white people. Mm -hmm. How do we avoid that same thing happening in uh, this multi-ethnic church movement? Can you give us a few tips on that one? No. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I, I can't. I I think... um for me, when I when I talk about church, and I know you you post about this a lot on on, on your your Facebook page, oftentimes it comes down to leadership, uh, because in my humble opinion, I think leadership really sets the direction of of the church and where it's going, um, and I think until you have leadership in churches that understand. Uh, the need for conversation until you understand uh, have leadership in positions that understand the need for empathy and compassion and having tough conversations and getting out of the norm in my humble opinion things things are not going to change i'll give you a great example um after um, after the shooting at uh, mother emmanuel church uh, local uh, lutheran church um, pastor who I am I'm very dear friends with her name is um, Janet Hunt amazing woman um, uh, called me and said um, um, we're uh, we're uh, we're lamenting with with you all um, at New Hope during this tough time and we know the racial issues that continue to go on in this country and we want to do better as a church can we come worship with you all this Sunday mm-hmm. said absolutely you're always welcome here she said not only can we come and worship there but do you mind if i make a a statement during worship service said of course you can so they many of them came um after their they have a service that starts about an hour and a half before hours so after they got out many of them came and worshiped with us and invited her to sit in the pulpit with me which she did and then she um spoke as well and she um started her her comments with an apology and she said i'm sorry and she says, I say this not only to the black church, but I say this to all African-Americans. Mm. And she says, as a white church, we've been complicit too long. Mm. We've been silent too long. We've watched injustices happen too long. And we call ourselves Christians, but we're not living out the way of Christ if we're just sitting back and watching this happen. To me, that was probably one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in my life because she started the process of healing and reconciliation by admitting their fault. And I think part of the problem that we have in this country is too many people don't want to admit when they're at fault. Too many people don't want to admit, well, you know what, we may have been doing something wrong. Maybe we need to think about doing something different. Um, but, but since then, the reconciliation and the ministry that has happened between our two churches, a predominantly African-American church, a predominantly Lutheran church uh, that was started Swedish, if I'm not mistaken, over 100 years ago, um, the ministry, the collaboration that has happened between these two churches um, has made a major impact on our community, but it started with an apology. And I think until you have leadership that understands um, and embraces compassion and understands the importance of humbling yourself, like God humbled himself, Christ humbled himself, until you have leadership that understands that, we, we can't make the inroad changes that need to take place. Mm-hmm. And I think we have, we have too many people in positions of leadership who are not willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's helpful. Yeah, that's great. Mike Moore, can you summarize... 
the things we've learned today in this last <laughs> 25 minutes? Uh, humility is needed. Absolutely. To one, I think, have the conversation. And then two, to move past the conversation where we get can be in the same space. We can worship together, pray together. And I would also highlight that pray part. Absolutely. Can we come together and actually pray about it and let the Lord convict us and lead us into a new place where there's something, um, where there's space where the, the Lord's Spirit can bring the kingdom. Absolutely. And, and I, I secondly, I get from Joe is let's not jump uh, too fast ahead into a multi-ethnic expression of the church when we haven't figured out what the issues are and how the various groups, especially the black church, needs to be the black church first. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I got one more question. I know I said my last was my <laughs> last one. You sure you're not Baptist? That's a Baptist <laughs> clothes right there. Now you get the clothes three times. I'm married a Baptist. <laughs> um, okay, so for the same reasons interracial marriage can be a net good, isn't multicultural church also a sign taking into all the account the antagonisms the 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 injustices the violence the inherent histories here of slavery and oppression and that we need to uh, uh, listen and and lament and repent and just some of what you just finished saying about the Lutheran pastor isn't multicultural church a sign of an expression of the salvation, this salvation made possible in Christ? Well, I will be honest about what I've seen as it relates to multi-ethnic, multicultural churches. What I've seen, my experience, is that um, many of these spaces want our, want our black bodies, but they don't want our black expression. Mm. Or um, no, let me reverse that. They want our black expression, but they don't want our black bodies. Mm. And, and I say that meaning that yes, we need you to be our praise and worship leader. Yes, we need you to be our musician. Yes, we need you to do that. But when it comes to true leadership, from what I've seen, it's not multi-ethnic in the leadership of the church. And what what I've also seen is is that. Um, and I said this earlier, when you're not speaking to my lived experience as a person of color in this country, then you can't talk to me about this being a multi-ethnic church. If it's multi-ethnic, then you need to speak to my ethnicity and what I'm dealing with. And if you're not doing that, then don't stop with this multi-ethnic language. Now, let me make it very clear. I have no issue with multi-ethnic churches. I have no issue with multi um Uh, multicultural churches. Is there a need for them? Absolutely. Are they important? Absolutely. From what I've seen, I just don't see it as a multi-ethnic engagement. We just have a place where we gather with really different religions in one place, but we're not investigating or engaging the ethnicity of all the groups that we have in those places. So we have done a lot in this short program and we need to thank you, Joe. Yes. My pleasure. It's been great. And I think we need to have you back on. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to get some pushback from certain people. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's yeah. going to be okay. I anticipate we're, that. But I, I just want to say I have learned about the complexity of the issues, uh, many much of the groundwork that needs to be laid, um, some, of, some of the ways we jump too fast to go to an agenda that doesn't either meet our context or is more an expression of my type A uh, <laughs> personality as opposed to the will of God. And so I feel like I've learned a lot. 
Yeah, no, it's been great. It has been great. Well, thank you all for the invitation. I enjoyed it. Great conversation. Thanks, thanks for being here. It's been great. Uh, folks, this is the end of our podcast, but we do have a very important lecture series coming up. Do you yeah. want to explain that while I cough? Yeah. <laughs> June 6th and June 7th, Reggie Williams is coming uh, to Northern. He's actually going to be teaching a class that week, but on June 6th, Thursday night, 7 to 9, um, June 7th, 9 to 12. And we have a speaking. breakfast. You can still sign up for the yeah, breakfast. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's still a breakfast. Uh, we have a few panelists who are coming. Carrie Casey, David Swanson, Brown and McCarthy. Uh, they're going to come on Friday to respond to... That breakfast is very breakfast. cheap, and we have an open Q&A between Reggie, myself, and the and the, and the group mm-hmm. in the room. Which yeah, is it's very cheap. It's very... I think it's $10 for, for, both, for both. the is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know something I don't know? I think it's croissants. <laughs> Ouch. Okay, maybe I'll take that back. But anyways, Reggie's talking about uh, social incarnational engagement, what the black church can teach the rest of the church about mission. We've been looking forward to this a long time. We hope to see more of you out there. Still time to yeah. register, and it's pretty cheap, too. Does yeah. it cost anything? It's five It's five dollars per Five lecture. bucks, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. Throw in an extra five to help the budget if you Yeah, please. <laughs> there you yeah. go. <laughs> Folks, if you can give us a review on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you choose to listen to this program, we'd appreciate it. And yeah. uh, until next time, it's over and out. Dave Fitch and Mike Moore and Joseph Mitchell. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you all.